0: The title of today's sermon is Hudat. It's taken from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Would you pray with me? Father, guide us in our study. May the Holy Spirit teach us through this scripture. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you see the picture behind me? Well, not yet. Want to put that picture up? Who is that? Do you know who that is? I would guess not. About a year ago, I joined Ancestry.com. It's a website that allows you to search all sorts of public records for past family members. It's still a laborious task wading through these public records of people who have similar names and come from all over the world. But the Jews living in the first century had no such problems. They didn't need to depend on Ancestry.com. For if they cared to know anything about their lineage, they could get the information straight from the temple, where the records were kept meticulously You see, lineage was incredibly important to the Jewish people for it determined their identities as Jews. However, the most important reason for keeping such meticulous records was to be able to identify those individuals and to what tribes they came from. To identify members of the royal family. To identify those who were part of the tribe of Levi and therefore in the priesthood. For example, following the exile, which we just looked at in the book of Daniel, a man might have returned and claimed to have had royal blood, or possibly been a member of the tribe of Levi. Such a person would there then be asked for proof. Authorities would want to know where he came from, what was his background. This kind of thing did take place after the exile to Babylon. As Jews returned to Jerusalem, unscrupulous men tried to take advantage and make claims that they were part of the royal family or part of the Levitical priesthood. That's why we read in Ezra Ezra, chapter 2 and verse 62 that they sought their registration among the enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. You see, these genealogical records kept at the temple eliminated all frauds. King Herod, the great, who you know was an Edomite, that is a descendant of Esau, who married a Gentile, so the line of the Herods was half Jew and half Gentile, He was despised by pure-blooded Jews in Israel. To have a king over them that wasn't even Jewish was a real problem. And Herod was ashamed of his own background, so he ordered all the genealogical records they had to do with his family destroyed. And from that time on, no one could prove that they possessed a pure pedigree than he did. Matthew anticipates these questions about our Lord Jesus and his lineage. Therefore, he begins his gospel with a genealogy. He focuses because he knows his Jewish audience will reject Jesus as the king unless he puts aside rumors that have crept up around him. Matthew will put these rumors To bed when he presents the credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and only one with credit to be the Messiah King. So, chapter one of the book of Matthew presents the heredity of the King. Jesus' pedigree is broken down into two categories, his human pedigree and his divine pedigree. So Matthew will present to us in this chapter in an orderly fashion his genealogy, which establishes his claim as Messiah and as King of Israel. Secondly, he will give an account in the Second portion of the chapter, which we do not look at this morning, of his supernatural conception and birth, which were required by his genealogy. He explicitly asserts that Jesus was born to a virgin. By doing so, Matthew answers the suspicions of those who claimed Jesus' birth was illegitimate and tainted. All of us recall the suspicions and the bantering that went about concerning the illegitimacy of the birth of Barack Hussein Obama. The conflict over his birth certificate raged. Was he a natural-born citizen of the United States? There were many then and still today who are suspicious of his claims to having been born in Hawaii. But you see, that really wasn't the issue. That was look at the glove rather than the evidence. It was whether or not both of his parents were American citizens when he was born. To prove that he was, all Obama had to do was bring forth the documents that proved his parents were American citizens. He could have done this before his election in 2008, but we all know that he didn't produce such proof. All he needed to do was produce the naturalization papers of his father, not a birth certificate, to prove he was a natural-born citizen. But neither were produced in an early fashion. For the religious leaders in Israel to debunk Jesus' claim that he was the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, all they had to do was produce the geological records that he wasn't of the line of David. But they never claimed. They never, ever claimed that Jesus was not the legitimate heir to the Davidic throne. They never consulted the records at the temple. Instead, they chose to accuse him of blaspheming God and being in cahoots with the devil. Matthew presents the documentation in a straightforward manner in this introduction that he is who he said he was, the legitimate rightful heir to the throne of David. This is the only gospel that begins with the proof of his ancestries. We will see in the first 17 verses of this chapter his human heredity. So please, if you will, open your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Matthew. You can find this on page 957, I think it is, of the Pew Bible. Verse 1 begins this way. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. It seems a bit strange for Matthew to begin with the theological biography, if you will, and starting it with a genealogy. Would you start your story, your human story of your life with a genealogy? Probably not. But it really isn't strange when you remember that he is writing his book to a Jewish audience that deems this very important. So he takes his readers back to the Old Testament. He returns to the genealogies of Adam and Abraham, which are found there. Matthew's opening phrase here, however, we should not miss is very important: the record of the genealogy. It's an interesting phrase. In Greek, it reads Biblios Genesis, which literally translated means the book of Genesis. As you know, Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament. It gives the origins of all things. Genesis introduces us to the first Adam. Now the book of Matthew begins the New Testament. It introduces us to the last Adam. The first Adam was the head of the physical creation. The last Adam is the head of the spiritual creation. Now, if you were to do a search of that phrase in the Bible, the book of genealogy, you would find it peculiar to Matthew in the New Testament. But that phrase is found in the Old Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, where it says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. So then, these two books can be taken this way. The first book was the generation of Adam, as it says in Genesis 5.1. The second book is the generations of Jesus. Let me ask you this. How does one get into the family of Adam? By physical birth. You don't have to do anything to be in it. You don't have to do a thing. You are born into the family, into the generations of Adam. By being physically birthed. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul states that all in Adam, in his book, must die. Just as through one man's sin, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned and all are in Adam. It's not your personal sin that sends you to hell. If you reject Christ, it's your DNA being linked to Adam. So then the book of the genealogies of Adam is really a book of death. But thank God there's another book. That's the book of the generations of Jesus. So how does one get into the genealogy of Jesus? Is it by physical birth? No. You know it's not. But it is by birth, but it's by a second birth, a spiritual rebirth, if you will. Jesus told us that one must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. This new birth then is recorded in the pages of the Lamb's book of life. Therefore, all people are found in at least one book, the genealogies of Adam. But a few are found In two books, the genealogy of Jesus. All are in the first, but only those in Christ are in the second. Matthew begins his genealogy of Jesus with two important men from the Old Testament, as we saw last week, David and Abraham. Their genealogies are a witness, a testimony, a record of the bloodline that must run through the Messiah King. Their genealogies legitimized the exclusive claim that Christ made to be the heir to the Davidic throne. Now, some might read these 17 verses and say, boy, this is boring, this list of names I can't even pronounce. But it is so much more than that. It's a record of God's faithfulness in preserving the Jewish nation And the Messiah who would spring from it. This genealogy is indispensable in the identification of the one man who could fit that profile. It lays the foundation for all that will follow in this book that we study. So he begins... With Abraham's lineage, because Genesis states that the Messiah must spring from Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, it says, Abraham's seed, and it is through Abraham's seed that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus was a direct descendant of Abraham. It was Jesus' blood relationship to Abraham and then David that makes him eligible to have the right pedigree to be king. He must descend from both men. But there's a problem with that, as we shall see in just a moment. For him to be Messiah and king, he must descend from both Abraham and David. In the first 17 verses, we find not boring information, but transformational information for especially the Jewish people who knew the Old Testament. He, that is Matthew, presents Jesus as a son of David. That is a direct descendant to the king of Israel. He connects Jesus then to this royal heritage. The promises that were made to David are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the kingship of Jesus had to come through the first Jew. So it had to go back to David and then continue on back to Abraham, to whom the original promises were made, as we looked at last week in Genesis 12 through 20. So Jesus must also be a son, a direct descendant of Abraham, for those covenantal promises made to Abraham to be fulfilled in the promised Messiah King. In doing so, Jesus must therefore then be the sacrificial son of Abraham and the sovereign son of David. This is one of the main reasons why I believe Matthew, the book, must have been written before 70 A.D. You see, if the the book was written after 70 A.D., all the records in the temple would have been destroyed when the Romans came in and burnt the city of Jerusalem to the ground. So for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes to be able to consult these records, the temple had to be standing. If they were going to go check the official registry, it had to be in place. So it must have been written before 78 AD. Today, Isn't it interesting that no Jew can know what tribe he's descended from? The records are all gone. Burned to a crisp. That means, that means that Jesus Christ is the only Jew who could ever prove his genealogical record substantiates his claim to be the Messiah King. So Matthew is saying to his Jewish brethren in this statement, here is your king. Behold your Messiah. If you don't believe it, go check the records at the temple. They're right there for you to look it up. Now, this list that's presented here in the next 16 verses is, can, can be broken down into three groups. In fact, the author breaks it down into three groups. These groups are based upon the three great stages in Jewish history. The first group of names are those who came before the establishment of the Davidic throne. The second group of names are those who reigned as king from David to the exile. All of this is part of the public record and available to be seen at the temple. The third group are those who followed the Babylonian captivity period, the exile, and returned to the city and the nation of Israel. So, they could have gone and checked the records, but they never did. So Matthew gives them these records publicly in this account of the life of Jesus. He begins with Abraham, the oldest name in the record, the first Jew. And he moves towards the present. And he ends with the father of Jesus, Joseph. This genealogy that we look at in Matthew, however, contrasts with a shorter, concise genealogy found in the third chapter of the book of Luke. Matthew writes in a Jewish form and Luke writes in a Greco-Roman style. We will consider the differences between these two genealogies in just a moment. Again, the first group, as we break these down, of the names in this genealogy come from the pre-kingdom period before David ruled on the throne. It begins with Abraham in about 2,000 B.C., 2,000 years before Christ. And it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. These are the famous patriarchs of the Jewish people. All Jews descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, physically and spiritually. The patriarchs are the founders of Israel. Here we see that that patriarchal line continues through the fourth son of Jacob. As you know, You've probably memorized these in Sunday school at some point in time, hopefully. The line continued through the 12 sons of Jacob, which included Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulon, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Each of these 12 would head one of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would bear their names. However, it was from Judah whom the Messiah would descend from. We know this because Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 states that the royal scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now this first group in the pre-kingdom period continues in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and by Tamar, Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Here's where things get really interesting. Notice that the royal line flows from Judah to his sons, Perez and Zerah. What's odd about this is that Matthew includes in his genealogy five rather questionable women in the record. We see the first one here. These women are included in the genealogical record, the family tree if you will, which is really odd. You don't find that normally in Hebrew genealogies. So, the first woman mentioned here is shocking. We read that Tamar was the mother of Perez and Zerah. In verse 39, uh, excuse me, in chapter 39 of the book of Genesis, we learn that Tamar was a Canaanite a Gentile woman. She married Judah's eldest son, thus becoming his daughter-in-law. His name was Er, E-R. He was a scoundrel, and on the account of Er's wickedness, the Lord sovereignly took his life. That meant he left Tamar a widow and childless. Now, as you might know, Leverite law... Concerning marriage, called upon Tamar to marry the next brother in line to heir, the next of kin, if you will. So her father in law, Judah, followed the Levite law and gave Tamar heir's brother, Onan. Onan was a scoundrel. He refused to consummate the marriage with Tamar, instead, he spilled his seed. On the ground. You see, Onar didn't want his inheritance being compromised and having to go to his older brother's wife's child. He disobeyed the Lord. And so what did the Lord do? He took his life. Onan died. Judah had one more son, heir's brother. His name was Shelah but he was too young to marry Tamar. So Judah, the father-in-law of Tamar, told her to return to her father's house and wait for Shelah to come of marriageable age. However, once he did, Judah reneged on his promise to give Shelah to Tamar. So Tamar is frustrated. She's childless and husbandless. She's a widow living in her village, a da- very tough life. One day, Judah decides to travel through her village. She learns of it, and she disguises herself as a prostitute. Wearing a veil, she entices her father-in-law, Judah, who has lost his wife just recently, to come in and sleep with her. Don't you love the Bible? It's like, it's like an afternoon soap opera sometimes, isn't it? God allows Tamar to become pregnant with twins. And Judah becomes the father of two illegitimate sons. Tamar was tainted sexually by her deception of Judah, playing the harlot and entering into this incestual relationship. She she was a great sinner and a Gentile, Yet, she's found in the genealogical records, the family tree of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. This is an illustration of God's grace. Now, looking at verse 4, we see the group of pre-kingdom names continues. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Naishan, and Naishan the father of Salmon. There is not much known about these names, except they were faithful to the Lord. And in verse 5, it continues, we read, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. There we go. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Ah, now things get really interesting, don't they? Two more ladies, much like Tamar. Both women are Gentiles. Both women Will be tainted by sexual impropriety. We begin with Rahab. As you know, she was a Canaanite living in the town that the spies were sent to Jericho. Joshua records that she was very brave, for when the two spies showed up her doors at her door, she hides them on the rooftop and keeps them hidden from the searching Canaanite troops. She is noted in scripture and in Hebrews chapter eleven for her rescuing. The two spies and helping them um, bring destruction down upon the city of Jericho. Because she delivered the spies, she and her family were saved out of all those who lived in the city. We learn from this text that she married Solomon and was the mother of Boaz. Now, as you think about it, Rahab was not really the ideal candidate to trust in God. She lived in a wicked city. She practiced a wicked profession. She's called a harlot again and again and again in the Bible. Both of these were under the condemnation of God. She lived in a corrupt, depraved pagan culture. We also know that she was not the benefactor of the leadership of godly men like Moses and Joshua. However, Rahab had one thing going for her. She listened with an open mind about the testimony of God concerning the Israelites. She had come to fear Yahweh. Rahab had heard about their great escape from Egypt, their crossing of the Red Sea, as well as surviving 40 years in the wilderness. Most importantly, she had heard about the Israelites' defeat of the Amorites, these Jewish unarmed slaves had defeated the horrible enemy and the armies of the Amorites. Joshua records her words to the Hebrew spies about all of this when she said, For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above all the earth. Amen. It's her faith coupled with her choices that delivered her and her family from destruction. You see, she was a great sinner and a Gentile, and yet she's included in the family genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. It's an illustration of God's grace. Now, these men and these verses were important, but they, in my mind, are only props for these women of faith. Next on the list is Ruth. She was a Moabitess, a Gentile, a foreigner despised by the Jews. Deuteronomy 23 tells us why when it says this. It states that no. Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the righteous. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet with the Jews with food when they were on their way out of Egypt. You shall never seek peace or prosperity with them for all your days. Clearly, clearly the law excluded Ruth from being a part of Israel. She was an alien and hated by the Jewish people. That hatred began way back in the Jewish lineage between a father and a daughter. In Genesis chapter 19, we learn that, the, that both of Lot's daughters slept with him and were with child by their father. The firstborn, the first bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So why in the world is Ruth included in this text? It's never explained to us. One possible reason, I think, for her inclusion is that she paves the way, as the other ladies will, for the testimony of Mary being included in the family. You see, Ruth is a great sinner and a Gentile, and she is included here in the family record of Jesus and the genealogies as an illustration of God's grace. Ruth shows us that the Lord can change any life and take it in a godly direction. He works in the life of this Moabite woman to accomplish his purposes just as he does in all of his children. Although Ruth came from a pagan background, once she met the God of Israel, she became a testimony to his grace and mercy. Now this brings us to the kingdom period. As you know, it begins with Saul, but this text starts with David. This runs from about 1000 BC to the exile in 604 to 586 BC. So the first pre-kingdom period was for 1,000 years. And now we're seeing that another 500, 400 years will pass. This group includes all of the descendants of King David. Look at me at verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David, David the king. David was the father of Solomon. Again, here comes one of those ladies. By Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. ha, <laughs> ha. They were a pretty good rock group in the 60s, weren't they? Uriah Heep. All of these men are kings during the kingdom era. Some names of the list of kings are omitted for abbreviation purposes, which I will explain. But the kingdom runs through each of these successive kingdoms, and they all come from the southern kingdom of Judah. They have to because the line runs through Judah. Previously, we saw that three unlikely women were included in this genealogy. Here's the fourth. No more of an unlikely person to be included in the genealogy of Christ than Bathsheba. She was the third wife of David. She became the mother of Solomon, who would be the next king. Bathsheba, however, was... Only married to David because he seduced her after watching her bathe from the rooftop perch of his palace. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was at war. Obviously, if Uriah was a Hittite, so was his wife. If Matthew had searched all the pages of all the Old Testament throughout its history, he could not have found a more improbable candidate than this woman to be in the geological record, the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why does he include Bathsheba and these other women? Some suggest that it's always been the will of God to redeem a sinful remnant from among the Gentiles. Others state that it was the Lord demonstrating forgiveness to women who had to go pass through illicit sexual relationships and marriages. Really, the only commonality that these four women have is their suspected illicit sexual activities. You see, Bathsheba was a great sinner. And a Gentile. Yet she's included in the genealogy, the family tree of the Lord Jesus as an illustration of God's grace. I think Matthew included these ladies to do that. To show God's dealing in grace with people of lesser rank. But I also think he included them to foreshadow the dubious reputation that Mary would have at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Now, notice in verse 7 and beyond, uh, it still follows the Solomonic line, this genealogy does, when it says this. Solomon, this is going to be very important, was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of... Abijah and Abijah was the father of Asa. As you know, Solomon was the son of David by Bathsheba. But do you know how many sons that uh, that David had altogether? Any guesses? 2 5 Any guesses? In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we get a list of his sons. He had 19 sons by three principal wives. He had Ammon, Daniel, Absalom, Adonijah, uh, Sheptah, Aritham, uh, Shema, Shobiah, Solomon, Ipthar, Elisha, Eliphat, Noga, Nephagan, Jephia, Elisham, Eliadad, and Eliphaleta. He also had an unnamed son by Bathsheba that the Lord took in infancy. I'm sure glad he named his successor Solomon rather than one of those other names to say all the time, don't you? David fathered 19 sons by three wives, but he had eight other wives as well. I'm sorry, five other wives for a total of eight. He had Michael and Abigail and Bathsheba as the principal wives, and he had Oam, Makkah, Haggith, Abedal, and Elga as other wives. He also fathered a number of sons that were not in the royal line by concubines. Now, the Bible never tells us how many daughters he had. There's only one particular daughter found in the scriptures named Tamar. So the question is, for many, why didn't Daniel's firstborn son inherit the kingdom? Rather, his fourthborn son in Solomon. I'm sorry, ninthborn son in Solomon. So why Solomon? The ninth born son. Isn't secession supposed to be based upon birth order? And why was a son of Bathsheba who committed a heinous crime, a sin against God by having an adulterous relationship with David, why is it her son? Adultery, murder. She conspired with David to have her own husband killed. You see, Bathsheba was a great sinner, a Gentile. And yet she's included in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ as an illustration of God's grace. The Salimic line continues in verse 8 with Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. If you compare this genealogy found here in Matthew with that found in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, you'll notice that there are some difference in spelling of the names. You will also notice that there are three of the names found in the Chronicle list missing from that in Matthew, those of Aziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Notice in verse 9, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Hezekiah. Then verse 10. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Once again, comparing these lists, we find these names omitted by Matthew. The last of the list is found in verse 10 of the kingdom kings. We know that Jehoiakim jo- followed Josiah, the end of verse 10, but he was left off the list. Why? All of these omissions that I've talked about that are found in other texts were left out by Matthew, not arbitrarily, but for the purpose of memorization. He shortened these lists to 14 names, we'll see this in verse 17, for memorization purposes. Now, verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah, his name is very important, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, Josiah technically is not the father of Jeconiah. He is his grandfather. Jeconiah is also called in the scriptures in different places Jonechachin and Koniah. But his name is important because of what we find in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. You might want to write that next to his name in your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. There we read about him. As I live, even though Coniah, that's Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I will pull you off. Write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man, for no man, for no man of his descendants will prosper and sit and sit on the throne of David or rule over Judah. There it is. The man Kona, Kim, was cursed by God. So how could the line of Jesus flow through Solomon down through Jeconiah if he is cursed? If no son of his shall sit on the throne of Judah. Notice that in the Jeremiah passage, the J-E is dropped off of Jeconiah just shortened to Coniah. Why is that? J-E was the name of God. Jehovah. And so it is removed from this wicked king. God didn't want to have anything to do with Jeconiah. Coniah was cursed. And all of his descendants were cursed to never sit on the throne of David. So... This curse would not allow a physical descendant of the Solomonic line, you have to understand this, to become the Messiah King. Now, let's compare the genealogy of Matthew with that of Luke. As you can see behind me, is this going to work? Ah, you stupid thing. Not working. Solomon, you got, you got your pointer back there, Danny? No. See, with Solomon is circled. Oh, there it is. Solomon is circled right here. This begins with Abraham, goes through Solomon, comes down to Jeconiah, see him, and continues to Joseph and Jesus. Over here we have Luke's. He begins with God and Abraham and goes through all these. These are not found in Matthew. Matthew begins with Abraham and he continues with Abraham over here. He continues down through David, David, And Jeconiah is not there. Why? Because this is the second son of Solomon. Excuse me, David. First son, second son. This is of the Solomonic line. This is of the line of Nathan. Both end with Joseph and Jesus. How in the world is that possible? How can Joseph... Be the father of Jesus from the line of Solomon and the line of Nathan, two different brothers. It's not possible, is it? No. Well, Matthew will tell us that Joseph is not the natural, physical father of Jesus. That's why the virgin birth had to be hap- had to happen. Matthew makes it clear that Joseph's descent from Solomon carries the legal title to the throne of David. The legal right flowed through Solomon as the first son of David and stopped, however, at the curse of Jeconiah. It was not physically possible for Jesus to receive the physical right to the throne through Solomon. Notice on the slide... That Solomon's list begins with Abraham, but Luke begins with Adam, as I pointed out. From there, they are one and the same until you come to the cursed Jeconiah, Coniah, if you will, in Jeremiah 23, 20. Then the lists are completely different. There's no names the same. Notice on the next slide. You want to put that up for me? There's a reversal of the order here. He's reversed the order. So you can see the differences between them. Okay? This is all the same, but then this is completely different from this point on. The coming Messiah had to be the physical son of David. So how did that happen? The curse of Jeconiah did not fall on the second line, the line of Nathan, through which Mary descended. Okay? So on the left we have the paternal line through Joseph, and on the right we have the maternal line. It was by Mary that he physically descends through Adam, excuse me, through David as the successor to the throne. We see this in Luke. Now more on this in just a bit. Let's focus on the last part of this um, genealogy, the post-kingdom men in the genealogy, if you will. This covers the time period, as I said, from 604 or 586 B.C., the three exiles, to the time of Christ. In verse 12, it says that after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shiateel, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel. Matthew continues the Solemnic line that makes Jesus legal heir through Joseph in verses 13 to 15, saying, Zerubbabel was the father of Abinad, the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eluid, and Eluid was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob." These men were all members of the southern kingdom, the line of Judah, and came through Solomon. Now let's focus on verse 16, where we see a problem. Verse 16 says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born and who is called the Messiah. Put that original slide up there one more time, if you would. The one we have comparison of Matthew and Luke. Hello? Here? Okay. Joseph and Jesus through Solomon, through David, through Abraham. Joseph and Jesus through Nathan and Abraham and all the way back to Adam. Not possible, is it? Just go ask Ancestry.com if that's possible. Notice on the bottom of the list that Joseph's father is said to be on one list as Jacob and on Luke's list, Matthew list has Jacob and on Luke's list he has Heliah. It cannot be, He cannot have two different fathers. He cannot be the son of both Jacob and Heliah. So what's the answer to this conundrum? Many explanations have been pro-offered to resolve this question, but I only find one that is satisfactory. To think about this issue and to resolve it with this answer makes it no problem at all. You just have to look at the language. The language of the scriptures is very important. Matthew never, ever states that Joseph fathered Jesus if you read the verse very carefully, it says Joseph was the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus, was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Matthew doesn't use, if you got an old King James, it doesn't say begot or was the father of Jesus. That language is not there for him, but it is found of all the others in the genealogy. It says here that he is the husband of Mary. Who, to whom was born Jesus. Now, there's a deliberate change in form there to make this clear. And he also uses the language by whom, a phrase that's very important. Circle that. Highlight that. If you understand Greek grammar, you will see that Matthew uses a feminine singular pronoun whom that points clearly back to Mary as the antecedent. Okay? Okay. It's the antecedent is Mary, not Joseph. So Joseph we know was the son-in-law of Heli. H E L I. He was not his physical son, he was the son-in-law. Everything in this text of Matthew supports, confirms and affirms the virgin birth of Jesus. And in fact in the last portion of this text, verses 18 through 25, he will speak directly to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Another important important thing that we should notice in this text is that he refers to Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah using, depending on your Bible, the Hebrew or the Greek word. We find this in verse 1, 16, 17, and 18. This shows the theological implications of the genealogy. However, for most modern readers, that's code for misinformed and non-caring millennials. Christ is just nothing more to them than a surname. But Matthew's using it as a title. Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. He is the expected one from the line of David through Abraham to receive the kingdom that was promised. Five women in this text are tainted sexually, not just four. Sexual impropriety in some way is associated with all of these ladies. Four of them are Gentiles. I believe these ladies foreshadow the arising of Mary as the coming of Jesus who there are rumors about. Just as these four ladies possessed questionable character in the minds of most Jews, so does Mary. That's why the virgin birth is so important. I said it was not the practice to include women in the Hebrew genealogies. Therefore, their inclusion was intentional on Matthew's part. All of these questionable women in some way Condition us for the rising of Mary as the mother of Jesus. Obviously, Tamar and Rahab were tainted. They were called prostitutes in the scripture. Bathsheba was certainly questionable because of her adulterous act with David. Now, most of us would give a pass to Ruth, wouldn't we? You've probably been sitting there wondering, well, what about Ruth? I don't know what she did wrong. Well, if you read the book, of Ruth close, the book of Ruth closely, you will find that she cuddled up next to the feet of Boaz on the threshing floor. This would, have been by, this would have been viewed by pious Jews as her offering herself to him sexually. That's why she came at night and left before anyone was able to see her. Otherwise, she risked great scandal. Four of these ladies are Gentiles. One a Hittite, one a Moabite, and two Canaanites. Holy cow, it blows your mind to think about it. These are the enemies historically of Israel, are they not? And yet, we ask the question, how in the world did they get into the genealogy of Christ? Because Luke was presenting the grace of God in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 17 is the conclusion. It concludes our focus on the humanity of the heredity of Christ. Next week, we look at his divine heredity, if you will. It says there, in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David, we're counted as 14, from David to the departure. Deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of the Babylon to Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, 14 generations. He divides this list into three groups of 14 for memorization purposes. He lists them in this manner so that the history of the kings, as we had illustrated in the opening video, that's why I showed that to you, him teaching a child the list of the kings in the genealogy, why it was important. He taught them that for memorization purposes. But now we've got a problem. If Bud, our local mathematician, with the help of our others, David Bruns, were to count the names up, do you know how many names we come up to? Take a guess. 14, 14, and 14 people is how many names? 42, but guess how many names are on the list? 41! One card short of a full deck. How can a name be missing, and how do we resolve that? Well, some count David on the list twice. That's how they resolve it. Another one counts the exile as a name on the list. Matthew himself seems to count David twice. But I think the problem is insignificant to the point that Matthew was making in his writing. And that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of the king coming with grace for you and me. Now, next week we examine his divine heredity. as found in the next closing passage's Verses of chapter 1. And as Paul Harvey used to say, and the rest of the story. I asked you at the beginning of the video, who dat? Who dat? Who dat? Who dat? Come on, put the picture up. Got slow hands back there. Ah, there we go. The picture is not of me, smart Alex. It's my great-great-grandfather from the Moffat line line by the name of Robert Moffat. He was the first and the greatest missionary to ever evangelize and explore Africa. His son-in-law had the name of Robert Livingstone. Livingstone, I presume. Maybe you've heard that before. However, Robert Moffat is famous in Missionary circles as an innovator and as a completer. He is known for the following quotations. He said this, In the vast plain to the north I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. Oh, that I had a thousand lives and a thousand bodies. All of them would be devoted to no other employment but to preach Christ to these degraded, despised, but beloved mortals. It could be that we are returning to such days. Didn't Hillary say it takes a village? Well, how can we apply this? How can we apply this text to our lives today in some practical way? Well, for one thing, we can see the usefulness of memorizing the scriptures. Before people had scrolls or Bibles in their homes, they had to rely on their memory, oral history. Matthew traces the genealogy and sets it down in a pattern that it could be easily memorized. Three sets of unbroken 14s. Before the monarchy, during the monarchy, and after the monarchy. He didn't even he didn't mention every single king, but he went for a system that employed a memorable term. If the reader wanted greater detail, all he had to do was go to the temple and he could find a complete list. Matthew's undeniable point of this text is that we should learn is that he was the legal heir to the throne of David and that he was the physical descendant, and therefore the bloodline heir to the throne of David. Another thing that we can learn from this text is you, ladies, are important. I don't care if you're a great sinner or if you're a Gentile. The Lord loves you. The Lord died for you. It's by God's grace, ladies, that you're saved. Obviously, you, ladies, are tremendous trophies of the Lord's love, grace, and mercy. He saves Gentiles in this time that we live in called the Age of Great. The Great Parenthesis, as I've called it. But he's coming back and he's going to win the Jewish people for himself. There will be a great revival in the kingdom that is to come. And he will break down the barriers that are in Israel right now to accepting him. And Jesus will reign as their Messiah and King. He will break down these barriers, though, that exist right now between peoples. The gospel of grace in Matthew teaches us that the following barriers will be torn down. The barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. We see it in Tamar. We see it in Rahab. We see it in Ruth. We see it in Bathsheba. The barriers were down then, and they're coming down. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither male nor female. Slave or owner, all are equal before God in Christ Jesus. Finally, the barrier between saint and sinner is borne down. God can use for his purposes all those people that we consider sinners in his plans and his purposes. Who would have chosen Rahab? Who would have chosen Bathsheba? None of us would have, but God Did Because the Lord Jesus Christ said, I came not to save the righteous, but sinners. And that was scandalous before the leaders of Israel. The forgiveness of God shines forth in this text as light in a dark place. It reaches beyond the nation of Israel to those Gentiles who would embrace Christ as Ruth did. Embrace the Lord as Ruth did. He also points out that God can lift those in the lowest places to places of royal lineage in his line. He came, after all, he came to seek and to save the lost. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your blessing in our lives. Gentiles, as far as I know, everyone here is a Gentile saved by the wonderful grace of God. Lord, use us, lift us as children of the King to do great work as we serve you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.